Betty was a clerk at the local Christian bookstore, and she enjoyed chatting with the customers. One day, she was complimenting a local pastor for his wonderful church, when suddenly Betty blurted out, Oh, Pastor Tom, I just love your body. Oops. Betty was speaking, of course, of the body of Christ, but that's not exactly how it was heard by the people overhearing the conversation. It made for an embarrassing moment. You know, the New Testament does refer to the church metaphorically as the body of Christ. At the incarnation, Jesus clothed himself in a human body in order to touch and to heal and to help mankind. Today, though, he carries on through another body, the church. Just as our spirit and mind interact with our surroundings through our body, likewise, the church is the means by which Jesus reaches out and touches this needy world. We, the church, are his hands and feet and mouth and eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 teaches us that the Spirit of Christ is working in the world today through the body of Christ. Our job is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, not hinder His work. I hope people look at our church and then say, Lord, I just love your body. I hope they do. Chapter 12 is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 11 discusses the power of the Holy Spirit. And then verses 12 through 31 describes the participation of the body. Well, verse 1 begins, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Apparently, the Holy Spirit was very active in the church at Corinth. Spiritual gifts were commonplace, but they weren't always coupled with common sense. There was ignorance in the church over the proper use of the spiritual gifts. As a result, some of the gifts were being abused and misused. You know, it's sad, but today, 2,000 years later, there's still a lot of ignorance among Christians concerning spiritual gifts. God intends for the gifts to unite us. Instead, they often lead to schism and division. When it comes to spiritual gifts, I've found that people tend to gravitate in two directions, two extremes, either charismania or charisphobia. I grew up in a church dominated by charisphobia. The supernatural gifts, the grace gifts, that's what charismata means, grace gifts. The grace gifts of the Spirit were explained away as having passed with the apostles. We were taught that the compilation of the New Testament made spiritual gifts obsolete. Of course, that's not what the Bible teaches. Nowhere does it suggest that healings and miracles and tongues and the like have passed away. Rather, these are gifts that Christians should seek. Our old church was afraid of the charismata or the spiritual gifts. I called it charisphobia. But I soon found out that other churches went to the other extreme, and they were dominated by these gifts. I call that charismania. It's possible to be so enamored with the gifts that you neglect the giver, and that can happen at times. You see, the Christians in Corinth, they were thrilled with these supernatural displays of God's power, but that power wasn't getting applied to holy and godly living. 
You see, here's where the church needs a balance. We need the power of God's Spirit in our lives. We also need the knowledge to use that power effectively. You know, some churches are a fireplace with no fire, just empty and cold. They're all orthodoxy. They got the doctrines down, but there's no life. Other churches are a fire without a fireplace. Oh, boy, that gets dangerous. A spiritual emphasis can burn out of control. Hey, we need the fire in the fireplace. That's what we need. We need the fire of God's Spirit, but within the fireplace of God's Word. We want to see people warmed, not burned. It's been said, as a dove climbs on two wings, likewise the Holy Spirit lifts the church on both the graces or the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Two wings, the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. That's what every church needs. Verse 2 tells us, You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Now apparently the Corinthians were particularly enamored with the vocal gifts. And we're going to talk more about these gifts next week. Prophecy and tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And here we learn why they were so fixated on these gifts. I mean, they had spent their whole lives long serving mute idols, gods that couldn't speak, gods with no voice. Now they had embraced an audible God. The Holy Spirit was speaking to them and speaking through them. No wonder they'd gotten a little carried away. But Paul warns them, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other, in other words, every time you sit here, thus saith the Lord, what follows may or may not be from the Lord. We need to test the words. We need to test the voices to see, number one, if they harmonize with the Word of God, and if they honor the Son of God. That's the twofold test. Do they harmonize with the Word of God? Do they honor the Son of God? This is why Paul says, no one speaking by the Holy Spirit will ever speak ill of Jesus. The Spirit moves upon a person's heart to submit to His Lordship, to proclaim their allegiance to Jesus, not deny His authority. When we study spiritual gifts, we need to remember that miracles can be counterfeited. You remember the pagan priests in Egypt were able to duplicate Moses' miracles, at least up to a point. The end times Antichrist will work lying wonders, the scriptures tell us. Even the Mormons claim to speak in tongues. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are intended to build up the body of Christ. They're good, no doubt about it. And that's why Satan will do his best to discredit them by misusing and abusing them. Well, notice verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Now, not everyone agrees, but it's my opinion that here Paul is categorizing three types of spiritual gifts. The first type he calls 
gifts. These are the motivations of the Spirit that are listed back in Romans chapter 12. We covered them when we went through Romans. They're the basic motivations for service that the Holy Spirit births in us at our conversion. Gifts like teaching and helps and administration and giving and so forth and mercy. They kind of color and shape our perspective on ministry. The second type of spiritual gift Paul refers to as ministries. The ministries of the Spirit are supernatural callings placed on individuals within the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 lists apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teachers. These are ministries of the Spirit. And then the third type of spiritual gift, these are called activities. The Greek word is energio or energies. Verse 7 refers to these gifts as the manifestations of the Spirit. These seem to be spontaneous eruptions of spiritual power, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, a gift of healing. Paul lists nine of these manifestations of the Spirit in verses 7 through 10. He says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. Now notice, first of all, spiritual gifts are not natural abilities. You need to understand this. They're not traits that you're born with. Nor are they learned skills. You don't go to class to learn these things. These aren't things that are are cultivated through practice. No, spiritual gifts are the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in and through my life. They're supernatural displays of the Holy Spirit's power. Once there was an old lumberjack. He was told that he needed to purchase a chainsaw, really help him in his work. He was told, you'll chop four times as much wood with a chainsaw as you will with an axe. But after several outings with the chainsaw, the lumberjack was chopping less wood, not more. So in frustration, he took it back to the hardware store. The clerk was surprised. He cranked up the chainsaw in order to troubleshoot the problem. And as soon as he did, as soon as the lumberjack heard the roar of the engine, he got this strange look on his face and he asked, what's that noise? Hey, spiritual gifts are like power tools. The Holy Spirit revs up these supernatural spiritual capacities in our lives that enable us to do more for God and to do better for God. And to each Christian, a spiritual gift has been given. But notice the outcome of these gifts. Paul says, therefore, the profit of all. Notice, each Christian gets a gift, but the whole body benefits from that gift. Before we tackle this list of gifts, understand why God gives them. For the pride of a few? No. For the promotion of the special? No. Paul is emphatic, spiritual gifts are given by God for the profit of the whole church. Now here's the list of gifts. He gives them to us beginning in verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Now knowledge is information. Wisdom is application. and We need both, don't we? A word of wisdom or knowledge is just that. It's a word. It's not a whole book. It's just a bit 
or a fragment of information. Suddenly, in the midst of a perplexing situation, the Lord gives you a piece of the puzzle that you've been missing. Hey, it's not all the information you'd like, but it's enough to make sense of your situation. You suddenly know the course to take. It's like a flash of genius. It's an idea or an insight that comes across the screen of your mind. It's given to you by God. It's information that you would not have known apart from God's Spirit. It's a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Verse 9 mentions another gift to another faith by the same Spirit. It's been said nobody ever gets over a canyon in two steps. At times it takes a leap of faith. And indeed it does. The gift of faith is that leap. It's a special faith given to you by the Spirit of God that enables you to rise up under duress and be bold for God. The gift of faith is lion's den faith. It's giant slaying faith. It's water walking faith. It's mountain moving faith. This is the gift of faith. And the Holy Spirit will give you a special allotment of faith when you need it most. He says, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Now ultimately, God is going to heal all of our sicknesses. When we arrive in heaven, you'll receive perfect health. You'll need no, no medical insurance when you get to heaven. You'll have perfect health. It'll be beautiful. On earth, there are times... When God doesn't heal. I mean, think about it. Everybody that Jesus healed, everybody that Jesus rose from the dead, what happened to them afterwards? At some point, they died. Every one of us dies. So there are diseases that God refuses to heal. It's part of living in a fallen world. Commonly, God heals naturally. Did you know the human body was designed with these amazing, rejuvenating capacities? I mean, it likes to heal itself. Get a little cut on your hand and give it time. The body will heal itself. God can also heal medicinally through doctors. The marvels of modern medicine are no less miracles from God, in my opinion. But on occasion, I believe God can and will heal us supernaturally. There is such a thing as the gift of healing. God uses individuals within the church to lay hands on the sick and to pray for their recovery. In fact, we've seen these miracles in our church. I remember specifically a lady suffering from a serious heart disease. This was years ago. She was facing major surgery. She asked if we would come by her house and pray, and I, I remember doing that one night. The next day, she called. She was so excited. She had gone for her pre-op exam when the doctor told her that her problem was gone. They couldn't find it on the tests. The surgery was canceled. And, of course, we were praising God. I mean, is there a doctor in the house? You bet there is. His name is Jesus. And at times, he will heal supernaturally. He did while he was on earth, and he still does today. Notice the double plural here. It's the gifts, plural, of healings, plural. Apparently, there are different types of healings. There's physical healing. There's mental healing. 
There's emotional healing. Evidently, there are also different gifts or ways of mediating God's healing through prayer, through the laying on of hands. Jesus used different ways in order to mediate God's healing. There's gifts, plural, of healings, plural. Notice verse 10 continues the list of spiritual gifts to another, the working of miracles. Now, if you believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, you should have no problem with miracles. For if God created the laws of nature, then He can suspend them or override them when and if He desires. I've never validated this story, but I heard Pastor Chuck tell it. In the early days of Calvary Chapel, a girl didn't have gas to get to church. She really wanted to come to church that night, so she took her garden hose, she filled her tank with water, and then she asked God to turn the water into gasoline. She figured if he could turn water into wine, he could turn water into gasoline. Well, when she finished praying, she drove her car to Calvary Chapel. Now, that's what Pastor Chuck says. It was a miracle. Billy Graham has written, As we approach the end of the age, I believe we will see a dramatic recurrence of signs and wonders which will demonstrate the power of God to a skeptical world. Just as the powers of Satan are being unleashed with greater intensity, so I believe God will allow signs and wonders to be performed. Hey, we should be open to miraculous things happening among us. He says, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now again, in chapter 14, we're going to discuss prophecy, tongues, and interpretation in depth. In addition to those gifts, here Paul mentions discerning of spirits. You know, we teach our kids to read, to recognize words and sentences and paragraphs, but understand, for kids to survive out there in this crazy world, they also have to know how to read between the lines. I mean, not everyone is honest and straightforward. Our kids need discernment, the discernment that goes beyond what can simply be seen. And this is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, discerning of spirits, Paul calls it. You know, a false prophet comes Jesus says, as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Satan appears as an angel of light. The gift of discernment enables us to see beyond the surface, beyond the facade, to the danger that's behind it. We need people in the body who have the gift of discernment. Verse 11 tells us, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. In other words, you and I don't get to pick the gift that we want. <clears throat> I mean, you can't say, oh, Lord, I'd kind of like healing. I mean, that'd be a cool gift, just run around and healing people. I mean, that would be a lot of fun. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit chooses what gift to distribute to each person. Spiritual gifts are ours to use, but understand, they remain God's possession. They remain His gifts. He's the power behind them, not you. Thus, when we exercise the spiritual gifts, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit's direction. 
The Spirit remains sovereign over His gifts. The Greek word translated spiritual gifts back in verse 1 of chapter 12 is pneumatikos, which means things belonging to the Spirit. This is why I don't believe a spiritual gift is something that you just sort of carry around in your back pocket and you just kind of whip it out whenever you want to show it off to people. Neither can you teach another person how to speak in tongues or prophesy or exercise one of these gifts. Remember, it's not a learned skill or a natural ability. These are gifts administered by the Holy Spirit. They're God's gifts. And it's the Holy Spirit who activates them in and through us. Now, Paul has introduced us to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so from here, he goes on to describe how they operate within the life of the church, how they exist for the profit of all. Verse 12, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now if you're an average adult, Here's what you accomplish every 24 hours. Check this out. Your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels 168 million miles every 24 hours. You breathe 23,040 times. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a half pounds of food, some of you more than that, maybe some of you a little less. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. You speak 4,800 words. You move 750 muscles. Your nails grow .000046 inches. Your hair grows Point zero one seven inches, and you use 7 million brain cells every 24 hours. Woo! No wonder you feel exhausted at the end of the day. <laughs> hey, your body is a miracle of engineering. It consists of several trillion cells and 10 major organs, all working in precise synchronization with one another. You know, the human body is a blend of unity and diversity. And so is the body of Christ. Hey, our church, we're many members, but we're one body. I mean, look around at the people in this room tonight. We're different folks from divergent backgrounds with varied gifts and diverse callings. And yet God has put us all together in His body. And He wants us to function and work in harmony with each other. Notice verse 13. For by one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Paul is saying that we all have a common spiritual starting point. Every believer was born into God's family by the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where we need to clear up some confusion. Non-Pentecostals will point out from verse 13 
that spirit baptism is used synonymously with Christian conversion. And they're right. Notice again verse 13. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Here he's speaking of our conversion. But then they conclude that spirit baptism always speaks of conversion. And it doesn't. Now understand the term baptized is like the term watch. You like these terms in English that have multiple meanings? I mean, think about the term watch. I'm, well, I'm not wearing a watch, but maybe you are. You're wearing a watch tonight. Or maybe you're standing watch. Same word, but obviously two different meanings. Likewise, the word baptism can mean two different things. On the one hand, it can mean to initiate. Or to make part of. Now we say this when the rookie quarterback goes into the game and a big defensive end comes up and smacks him and drives him into the ground. We all say, well, he got his baptism. It means to initiate or to become part of. But it can also mean to engulf or to immerse. Like a person who gets baptized in water. What happens? We bring them under the water, we immerse them, and then we lift them back up. It can mean immersion. Now, whenever Paul uses the term baptism or spirit baptism, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, he uses it to refer to conversion, this initiation, this being made part of. Romans 6 says that by faith we are baptized or made part of Christ. We're brought into Christ through baptism, through spiritual conversion. We're united spiritually to the life of Jesus. In Christ, I share all that he is, all that he's accomplished. That's when Paul uses the term, he's speaking of conversion. But when John or Luke or Jesus or Peter or pretty much anybody other than Paul uses the term in the New Testament, it speaks of immersion, not conversion. In Acts, Luke describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with the phrase filled with the Holy Spirit or being baptized with the Holy Spirit. In essence, it's the same word used to denote two separate experiences. The correct interpretation of a text depends on its context. Remember, there are times when the Bible speaks of being baptized with the Spirit as initiation as conversion, as salvation. But there are other times when the baptism of the Holy Spirit means immersion or being engulfed or being filled with the Holy Spirit. It can be confusing. That's why you got to understand the context of the passage. Remember when Paul uses the term baptism, he uses it to mean our origination into Christ. Elsewhere, it's used as our saturation with Christ. Did that make sense? You got it? Hope so. And here Paul says that when we're initiated into Christ, when we're saved, when we become our point of origination as a Christian, we're initiated also into his body. Now, you might join a church by coming forward and applying for membership. But you join the church, 
the moment you're connected to Christ, the moment you give your heart to Jesus. Spiritual baptism is like a merger. A smaller company gets gobbled up by a larger corporation. This is what happened to you when you gave your life to Jesus. You were the smaller outfit. All of a sudden, you got gobbled up by new management. Jesus took over your life. Now you have new leadership and new partnership and a new mission and new resources. You're no longer a mom-and-pop deal anymore. Wow, now you're part of God's kingdom. That's a big deal. Notice verse 14. For in fact, the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? I mean, one of the hindrances to harmony in the church is jealousy. A person refuses to accept their place. You know, it's, if they can't play the position they want, then they'll just take their bat and ball and go home. They refuse to follow. If they can't teach or lead, they just bail out. Hey, at church, you need to leave your agenda at the door. Church is not about any one of us individually. It's about the whole of us collectively. Don't expect to serve or give on your own terms. It's the Holy Spirit who dictates our calling. It's like your foot getting tired of its place in the body. Can you imagine your foot starting to grumble at you? There it is. Can you imagine your foot saying, oh, man, it's just hot and smelly in this sock. I mean, Dr. Scholes is my only friend. I have to bear with this ever-increasing weight you keep putting on every day. Man, I'm tired of being treated like a heel. My soul is so weary. I'm the one who's always towing the line around here. I keep putting my best foot forward and nobody even notices. I've just had enough of it. I'm putting my foot down right now. Can you imagine your foot grumbling and complaining in this way? I mean, he probably says, people even think I'm corny. Anyway. Or imagine your ear complaining. I'm tired of getting waxed. If someone sticks a needle in me one more time, I'm out of here. Ear, ear. What if the members of your body got tired of playing their role and started competing with one another? You'd become a spastic. I mean, you wouldn't be able to accomplish much, would you? And boy, sometimes that can happen in a church. When everybody starts jockeying for their own position and everybody starts competing with each other rather than cooperating with each other, it can render the ministry of the church useless. Notice verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. Everybody has a part to play. The eye hears, the nose smells. Everybody has a part to play in the body of Christ. You know, if you told your little league team that everybody could play the position that they wanted, you'd end up with ten pitchers and maybe one shortstop. Everybody wants the glamour positions. 
But boy, you'd have a lousy team, wouldn't you? And the same is true with the body of Christ. You know, here Paul paints a grotesque image. What if the whole body were an eye? I mean, just think about that. Your body, your whole body, just one big eyeball. Big eyeball rolling around. That's all there is to you. I mean, if that were the case, we'd all be blue. We could see, but we'd have no feet, no hands, no legs, no arms. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do anything if we were all just one big eye. But again, I'm afraid that's what's happened in many churches. They've turned into one big eye. I want this. I deserve that. Many churches today suffer from eye strain. That's what they suffer from. We need to let the Holy Spirit lead us, not our ego. Paul adds in verse 19, And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Now remember, the body of Christ is a blend of both unity and diversity. And to stress one above the other is a mistake. We need a healthy balance of both. On the one hand, to overstress our unity will rob us of our diversity. The big story in 1997 was the successful cloning of a sheep by a Scottish scientist. They named the sheep Dolly. I remember reading that and thinking, oh, that's no big deal. The church has been cloning sheep for centuries. I mean, often the church will strip its people of their individuality in the name of discipleship. We conform them, but not into the image of Christ. We conform them into our own image. Listen to this little poem. Be what I want, no more, no less, because I am right and no one else. Think what I think, do only what I do, then and only then can I fellowship with you. Sadly, that's the attitude that many churches possess. We don't want to overstress our unity and rob ourselves of our diversity. Yet on the other hand, if we overstress diversity, it will hinder a church's unity. I mean, at times, the health of the body needs for me to express my individuality. But at other times, our health is best served by me suppressing my individuality. I mean, there are Christians who never settle in. They never become a part of a church. Why? Because they're unwilling to swap their own personal agenda for the goals of the group. They insist on doing it their own way. They insist on their own thing, and they miss out on a God thing. Hey, unity and diversity need to be balanced by maturity. Remember, the gifts of the Spirit are for what? Therefore, the profit of all. This should be our motivation. Verse 21 says it best. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We all need each other, don't we? One day the ship's captain and the chief engineer, they were arguing over whose job was most vital. They decided to swap posts to prove their point. The engineer he ascended to the bridge of the ship. The captain, he went down to the engine room. 
Oh, about an hour or so later, the captain appeared on deck. He was covered with oil and grease. He was waving a monkey wrench. He was shouting to the engineer, Chief, you need to get back down here. I can't make her go. The engineer shouted back, Of course you can't because I just ran her aground. Both men needed each other. I mean, you have gifts that can bless and benefit me. I have gifts that can bless and benefit you. We should recognize that we all need each other. At the close of World War II, Jimmy Durante and Ed Sullivan, they got together for a big event among some wounded soldiers. Sullivan was hosting a, uh, a show for, at a veterans hospital for wounded soldiers. And he had invited Durante to come and entertain the soldiers. Well, Jimmy Durante had a radio show that scheduled that night, but he said he could squeeze in one short routine. Well, Sullivan was shocked when that short routine turned into a couple of hours. Later, Ed Sullivan asked him, why did he stay? Durante pointed to two soldiers sitting side by side on the front row. Both had lost an arm in the war, and they had done their clapping that night with their two remaining hands. And it had so moved Jimmy Durante that he couldn't leave. And did you know this is what moves the Holy Spirit to move upon us? I mean, spiritually speaking, we're all disabled to some degree in some way. Where I'm weak, you make me strong. Where you're weak, maybe I can help you. God wants us to see that we're better for Him together than we could ever be apart. This is the body of Christ. Verse 22. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. For example, there is a tiny valve that acts as a lid to your stomach. Just a tiny little slither of flesh. When this valve weakens, stomach acids float back up into your esophagus. The result is called esophageal reflux, or in layman's terms, major league heartburn. Ever been there? Boy, I have. I mean, speaking from experience, this is no laughing matter. It amazes me that the weakening of one tiny little flap of flesh can create such intense pain. It's a reminder that every part of the body is vital. It plays a pivotal role. Even the smallest little flap of flesh. You may be a tiny little valve in this church, but if you don't do your part, the body fails to function. We hurt. We may get doubled over in some way. There are parts of the body like the stomach valve that serve, but they're never seen. No one thinks of them until there's a problem. I mean, if a nursery worker fails to show up, or if the sound man sleeps in, or if the cleaners miss a week, suddenly everyone realizes how important their role happens to be. I mean, some might say that, that I have the glamour job, that I get to get up and teach God's Word week to week. Hey, but if everyone else didn't do their job... I would never get to do mine. Verse 23 teaches us to make sure that the people behind the scenes don't have to break down to get appreciated. 
The church should go out of its way to give honor to those members who might end up getting overlooked. Verse 23 ends, And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. In other words, the service I perform as the teacher is obvious, but not so for those who serve behind the scenes. I get plenty of recognition. Our shows of appreciation should go to those people who are unseen, the unseen members of the church. He says, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Division in the body is less likely if the attention and care is divided equally among the members. Well, verse 26 tells us, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You know, if I accidentally pounded my thumb with, my, with a hammer, it wouldn't just cause a swollen thumb. I mean, my entire body would begin to throb, would it not? I mean, when one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And just as the human body is so interconnected, so is the body of Christ. You know, it's been said, real fellowship doubles our joys and divides our griefs. You know, the church ought to be either praying for each other or rejoicing with each other. We need to be sharing both our joys and our pains. In essence, we need to be living life side by side. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Notice verse 8 provides us a list of spiritual gifts. And here Paul mentions two additional gifts he didn't mention before. Helps and administrations. The gift of helps is the supernatural knack for assisting someone without making them feel that you're taking over. <laughs> you know, I've had people help me in a way that only highlighted their competency and my inadequacy. Now, a person with the gift of helps has the ability to empower another person and bring out the best in them. They, they can help that person so that they shine and help themselves. Whereas the gift of administration is another valuable gift within the body of Christ, a person with this gift can help us get organized and help manage ministry. Business mogul Andrew Carnegie used to brag, take away our factories, our trade, our avenues of transportation, our money, leave us with nothing but our organization, and in four years we could reestablish ourselves. That's the power of organization. Spirit-inspired organization is a powerful tool in the body of Christ. I found seldom does a church need more organization, but every church could use better organization, ours included. It's been said we need men and women with the courage to dream, the ability to organize, and the faith to execute. Indeed. Now notice verse 29. After listing these gifts, notice what he says. Are all apostles? How would you answer that? No. 
Are all prophets? Nope. Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Nope. Paul is emphasizing the diversity within the body. We all have different spiritual gifts and callings. And I have no doubt the most frustrating experience in the world is to try and be something that you're not. Try to function in someone else's calling or mimic their gift and you're destined for misery. You need to find your place. You need to find your gifts. When we do, God blesses us in ways we never could have imagined. Now notice Paul's last two rhetorical questions. Do all speak with tongues? Well, what's been the answer to all the other questions? No. So do all speak in tongues? Nope. Do all interpret? No. The obvious answer is the same to the first five questions. No. And this is why I don't agree with many Pentecostals who believe that everyone filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues. Paul says not everyone will. Now, the gift of tongues, and again, we'll talk about it next week. It's a wonderful way to praise God and to pray to God. Everyone should be open to speaking in tongues, but Paul is clear not everyone will receive this gift. You know, in some circles, the gift of tongues is worn as a badge of honor. It sort of separates the spiritual haves from the have-nots. If you don't speak in tongues, you're treated as spiritually inferior. I've been to churches like that. That's sad. I mean, we're going to learn in chapter 14 that the gift of tongues is actually the least of the gifts. Paul concludes chapter 12, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And of course, that begs the question, what are the best gifts? How would you define the best gifts? I believe that the best gift is whatever I need at that moment. If I need information to make a decision, then the best gift is a word of knowledge. If I need to sort out my options, I might need a word of wisdom or a gift of discernment. If I'm afraid, I need the gift of faith. If I'm sick, then the best gift would be the gifts of healings. And yet there's one commodity even more important than the best gifts. Paul concludes, And yet I show you a more excellent way. This is what chapter 13 is all about. Understand, sandwiched between these two great chapters on spiritual gifts is chapter 13. It's called the love chapter. For the greatest gift of all is love. Hey, here's the surest way to know you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you love other people just as Jesus has loved you? Hey, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you have not love, you're just a clanging cymbal. And that's what we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll talk more about love and then about the gifts of tongues and interpretation and prophecy next Wednesday night as we tackle 13 and 14. Well, Father, we thank you for your word tonight and for your love for us. Again, Lord, thank you for speaking to our hearts. We pray you'll help us to apply these things. Lord, I hope 
that when you look at this church, you'll say, wow, I love that body. In Jesus' name, amen.